Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we're diving back into our verse-by-verse study for this, uh, through this amazing epistle, the book of Ephesians, that Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus, and we're in uh, sermon 2 of a seven-part series on, on the uh, spiritual warfare, the armor of God. So if you were here three weeks ago, we kind of introduced this subject from Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, and then uh, I was gone one Sunday. We had Mother's Day last Sunday, so this Sunday we're kind of back into our study. We'll be looking at verse 14 in the first piece of the armor, which is the title for the sermon this morning, the belt of truth. And so just in case you are showing up for the first time today and losing a little bit of the context, let me read for us, if I can, Ephesians 6, 10 through 14, and then we'll dive into our study of the belt of truth together this morning. Ephesians 6, verse 10, Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Father, we bow before you this morning and we pray for your help to understand your word as we venture into this incredible study of the armor of God. I pray that on this day that you would convict us of our apathy, that you would allow us to put on your armor and engage in the battle of spiritual warfare. This day, God, I pray that we would not be afraid Rather, we'd be ready to fight, having girded up our loins with the belt of truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, John Bunyan, who is the famous author of The Pilgrim's Progress, has also written an almost equally famous allegory called The Holy War. It begins like this. In this gallant country of universe, there lies a pleasant and peaceful municipality called Mansoul. The picturesque architecture of this town, its convenient location, and its superior advantages cannot be equaled under heaven. Once upon a time, a mighty giant named Diabolus made an assault upon this famous town of Mansoul. He tried to take it and make it his own habitation. This giant was the terrible prince of darkness. He was originally one of the servants of King Shaddai, who had placed him in a very high and mighty position. Knowing they had lost their positions and the king's favor forever, Diabolus and his rebels turned their pride into hatred against Shaddai and his son. They roamed about in fury from place to place in search of, a, of something that belonged to the king on which to take their revenge. At last, they happened to find this spacious country of universe, and they steered their course toward the famous town of Mansoul. Considering it to be one of the chief works and chief delights of King Shaddai, they decided to make their assault upon this town. 
When they found the place, they shouted horribly for joy and roared as a lion over its prey, saying, Now we have found the prize and how to take revenge on King Shaddai for what he has done to us. So they called a council of war and considered what methods they should use to win this famous town of Mansoul for themselves. Close quote. Well, today, Satan continues to attack and assault the town of Mansoul. This battle has been raging for over 6,000 years. He attacks whenever he can and however he can. Satan will not stop until the final trumpet is sounded. Satan will not give up until he is bound for a thousand years. Satan will not be permanently put down until he is extinguished in the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and where they will be tormented day in and day out forever and ever. Until that day, there is a war raging. There are battles being fought. There is hand-to-hand combat to engage in. And no active soldier during wartime conditions can fight against the enemy without the appropriate armor. He must not only possess the armor, he must put it on. For armor that is left on the ground is like showing up to an interview without a suit. Armor left on the ground is like like showing up for a final exam without reviewing the course materials. Leaving your armor off is playing the part of a fool. It's acting in extreme arrogance. It is throwing caution into the wind. A soldier is only as good as his armor. Without wearing the appropriate armor, a soldier is entirely defenseless and vulnerable against the attacks of the enemy. He can stand victorious only if he has put on the full armor. Each piece must have its place. Otherwise, he will easily be defeated and become a casualty of war. Every Christian has been drafted by King Shaddai into his army. Every Christian has been enlisted as a soldier of the cross. Every believer has been commissioned into active duty by our commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have all entered into the theater of war. We are now involved in a spiritual warfare, and we face a real enemy in the devil. We are being daily attacked with his advancing armies of his demons, of his hellish doctrines, and of his worldly schemes. If we are to win in this spiritual conflict in which we find ourselves, then we must engage in the battle. And this is true of each one of us in this room this morning, from the first to the last From the strongest to the weakest and from the oldest to the youngest, we must engage in the battle. We must put on the full armor of God. Today, I want to bring this message to you in three parts, three headings that will help us understand what is the armor of God, starting out with the belt of truth. And so our first heading, you see it there in your outline in your bulletin. If you want to take notes, it's number one, the first piece of the believer's armor. And if you are taking notes, that first blank there is that we need to stand firm in the strength of his might. In verses 10 through 13, we see that idea of standing firm repeated a number of times. Finally, it says, be strong in the Lord 
Verse 10, and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, our text for today, stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. A few weeks ago, when we first looked at verses 10 through 13, I tried to point out a few verb tenses to you that are essential to understand what Paul means when he writes this to the church of Ephesus. And what I want to say this morning is there's really only one verb in the present tense in the entire passage, and it's in verse 10, the word be strong. That is an imperative that is in the present tense, which means every moment of every day, you must stand firm. Again and again and again, you must, as the word rather, be strong. You must be strong on a daily basis. The idea is to have the strength that God gives us. We are commanded to be strong. The rest of the verbs in the passage are in the aorist tense. And what that means is it's something that was done in the past, but it has an ongoing effect in the present. Sometimes I think of the aorist tense as like getting married. I got married 12 years ago. It's something I did in the past, but let me tell you, it has implications on my life in the present. Beautiful implications on my life in the present. Something we did in the past, but we were married. We're still married. And the idea here is we're putting on the armor of God. It's something you did in the past. It's something that actually God did to you for the words to, where it says that you may be able, verse 11, and again in verse 13, when it says you may be able, that's actually given in the passive voice, which means God must enable you. He must put the armor on you in the sense of when you were saved, he suited you up in the armor of God, and he's commanding us as Christians in his army that we be strong, but that we also leave that armor on. This is not like a football game where you gear up in all of your pads, and you play for two or three hours, and when you're done, you take off your pads and you set them down until the next practice or the next game. The idea rather here in this text, since it's in the aorist tense, is that when you put on the armor of God, whether it's in the imperative or whether it's talking about standing, which is an, an infinitive, but both in the aorist tense, he's simply saying it's something you put on one time in your whole life. You never take it off. You never take a break. You never sit down. You never relax. You're always standing and you're always defending the battle that has been ultimately won by our chief commander, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet we have a part to play in the sense that we're defending ourselves. Jesus has already taken the high ground. Our job is to hold that ground. And you cannot hold that ground unless you understand how to function in this armor of God that he so graciously supplies for you. And so we've got to understand that this battle is not a physical battle. It is a spiritual battle. For verse 12 says the battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I don't know about you, but I don't want to face a spiritual battle unarmed. I want to have on the full armor of God, don't you? And so let me ask you this morning, church, are you wearing the armor of God? Have you been saved? Has God fitted you out with the armor that he desires you to have so that in the day of evil, which is each and every day that we live, you will be able to stand firm? You say, Adam, how do I do that? Well, let me tell you, your next blank here is gird up your loins with truth. 
That's how we stand firm. We begin to get into this first piece of armor here in verse 14, and we're called by God, having fastened on the belt of truth. This is a participle. It is subservient to the imperative, which is stand. Now that we are standing, what's supporting that standing is the fact that we have now fastened on, we have girded up, we have wrapped around our waist the belt of truth. I remember as a kid growing up with the old King James talking about girding up your loins. And I was like, Daddy, what are loins? And how do you gird them up? It sounds a little funny, doesn't it? Well, loins just refers to your waist. Your loins is your waist, everything south of your lowest rib and everything north of the hip bone. That's your loins. It's your waist. It's this area right here that you need to be uh, girding up. To gird up means to wrap around. It means also to make oneself ready. It has the idea of alertness, to be poised and ready to move for action. And so basically in the ancient world, I think you understand they didn't have tailored clothing. There were no big and tall stores. There was no way you could get an athletic fit. They didn't have slim shirts, and praise God, they didn't have skinny jeans. What they had, rather, were tunics. They had tunics, one size fits all, kind of like, you know, those snuggy fleece blankets that you can buy for $19.95 and snuggle in and watch a TV or a movie uh, one night, right? That's what they had. That's what they wore. They were cumbersome. They were loose. They were flowing. They were garments. That's what they used in the first century. Yes, they had on undergarments, but the outer garment of the tunic must be controlled in order to fight. And in order to control it, it must be girded in. You must take the excess material and bunch it up together and pull it up tight around your legs and tuck it into your belt. Many pictures of that could be seen. If you want to see some, just type in on Google. Not right now, please. Uh, But you can type in, what does it mean to gird your loins? And they'll show pictures of warriors. I should have maybe put some on the PowerPoint. But it, it doesn't look that cool, but... It's necessary, all right? I mean, if you didn't gird that stuff up, you're going to be tripping over the hem of your garment. And no soldier is going to be prepared to fight if he has a long, flowing robe on. And so this is the idea of girding up your loins or fastening your belt. It's simply to gather the extra material and tuck it in. This belt, by the way, would be worn inside the rest of your armor. It's on the inside. This idea of girding up your loins would be the first thing that you would do before you would put on the breastplate, before you would put on your sandals, before you would take up your shield, before you would take on the helmet of salvation, before you would grab the sword. The first piece of armor, the first thing that you would do to get ready for battle would be to gird up your loins, to wrap the extra material around your waist and to fasten your belt. Let me show you a couple of places in the Bible where this idea is used. Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, the first place where this concept is given to us in this familiar text of after the 10 plagues were given to the Egyptians through the power of our great God and his servant Moses, we then enter into the Passover. And the Lord's Passover was that miraculous time where the Israelites were told to take the blood of the lamb without any blemish and spread it on the doorpost of their house. And if they were to spread blood over the doorpost of their house, foreshadowing the blood of Christ... The death angel would pass over that house. But for the Egyptian homes that did not believe in Yahweh, in the God who created them, they refused to bow the knee to him. And so on that very night, the death angel took the firstborn of every son and the firstborn of even all of their cattle. 
to prove to them that our God wins, that he reigns, but he's also provided redemption for his people through blood, the blood of a sacrifice foreshadowing his son Christ. Well, on that very night, we read this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. This is the Lord's Passover. Even there in the Old Testament had the idea of be ready, be prepared. We're going to rush out of here this very night. God is going to deliver you from the bondage that you've been in for over four generations. But you've got to have your belt, your belt fastened. You've got to be ready for the deliverance. Look in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke. The Lord Jesus Christ employs the same language as he talks about being ready for, being prepared for his return, to be ready for the second coming. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12 and verse 35, Jesus says, stay dressed for action. Same phraseology, many of the same words used as taking up your loins. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may come upon the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. In other words, when Jesus comes knocking, when he returns, you better be ready. It will be too late to grab your garment and tuck it in your belt at that time. You must be poised and ready by girding up your loins and always being ready for action. It has the idea of preparedness, the idea of alertness, the idea of I'm ready to move. Third place that we see this used in the New Testament is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, we see how Peter encourages the believers there of Rome in the midst of persecution, in the midst of great suffering, in the midst of a very difficult time. He says to them in verse 13 of chapter 1, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying to the church there in Rome, be encouraged, my friends, while we're going through a difficult time, Christ is coming back. Put your hope not in this world, but put your hope in a Savior who will return. He will deliver you from your situation. And he's saying, in the meantime, prepare your minds for action. You cannot sit down and do nothing. You cannot fall asleep and take a nap. He is saying, rather, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded, and you set your hope on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so from these three different examples of the Old and New Testament, we could say that to gird up your loins and to fasten your belt means that you must cinch up all of your thoughts and make them captive to Christ. To gird up your loins means that you must tie down all of your loose thoughts and tie them to Jesus. To gird up your loins means that you better pull it together in your mind so that you can place your hope fully on the Lord Jesus Christ. One more thing about this is we need to next focus your mind on the truth. Focus our mind on the truth. Paul says that the truth performs this crucial function of spiritual warfare. Notice it's not just a belt of human ideas. It's not just a, a belt of human philosophy. No, no, no. It's a belt of truth. Truth holds the spiritual armor in place and safeguards us against any deadly entanglements. 
Many discuss what this truth is referring to. Some commentators, especially the ancient ones, think that this is eternal, objective, biblical truth revealed in the scriptures. And I believe that's the best way to understand the word truth here. There's a little bit of debate whether Paul is referring to this objective truth, meaning the the, the truth of God, or if he's referring to subjective truth, which would be the idea of truthfulness or sincerity of heart. I appreciate what John Stott writes on this, where he says, quote, we do not need to choose between these alternatives, close quote. And so the idea of whether it's objective or subjective, meaning whether it's God's truth or whether it's the truth that you now understand and with sincerity follow, I think is an unhealthy dichotomy. The objective truth of God's word becomes the subjective truth of the believer when he stands on the promises of God in truthfulness and in sincerity of heart. Jesus proclaims to those who were distracted with false teaching, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 8, 32. Later he said, sanctify them by the truth for thy word is truth. John 17, 17. Even here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21, Paul refers to the truth that is in Jesus. And so what I'm saying is there is an objective spiritual truth in Jesus and in the scripture, truth about God, truth about ourselves, truth about history, truth about the future. And without it, we do not have a chance in spiritual battles which are coming our way. We don't just discipline our thoughts for discipline's sake. We are not Epicureans or Stoics. We are not trying to remain steadfast or neutral in our thinking. No, we are to cast our cares upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to pour out our hearts on him. We are to fix our gaze on the glory of God. And here, we also view a few verses that demonstrate this idea of the belt of truth or the truth and substantial objectiveness of this truth that we can read about in some of these cross-references. For example, Romans chapter 12 in verse 2 talks about, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The same idea is used in Ephesians 4, 22 through 44, what we call the put off and put on passage. But there in verse 23, it says that you must have your mind renewed. And the only way to have your mind renewed is to focus on the truth of God's word. Colossians chapter 3 talks about truth in the sense of that we are to focus our minds. It says, if then we have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, setting your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. So in other words, if you're going to have a belt of truth, you must be focused on the truth of God's word. You must be focused on Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, right after the hall of faith, many famous people, men and women from the Old Testament who gave their lives for the glory of our great God because of faith they had in him. And then in verse 12, chapter 12, the very next chapter says, therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside of every weight which every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Again, the idea of setting your mindset, while this is more of a running analogy instead of a soldier analogy, the idea is the same. You can't run if you don't gird up your loins. 
If you don't tuck in your outer tunic, you're going nowhere. And so in order to do that, you've got to get rid of excess weight. You've got to get rid of sin and other things which cling so closely. And we need to learn to run with endurance the race that God has called us to. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one whom enlisted him. As a Christian, you and I have been enlisted in the army of God. We are soldiers of the cross, and therefore we don't have time to be entangled in civilian pursuits. We are called to war It is a daily war that we fight. And so girding the loins in battle was absolutely and fundamentally and critically essential for standing victoriously. This is simply not an option. This was an absolute necessity. Tucking in his robe into his belt is the sign that the soldier is now ready for the conflict. You don't have your loins tucked in, you're not ready to fight. To fasten on the belt of truth means that you have buckled down all your convictions so much so that you have a chapter and verse on the tip of your finger and on the tip of your tongue. You know where to go in the arsenal of God against any foe. As you prepare to enter into spiritual warfare, you cannot have any loose thoughts. You can have no slack beliefs. You can have no free thinking. There ought to be no original thoughts. There can be no worldly thinking. No one is prepared for spiritual battle whose mind is filled with human reasoning. You cannot be distracted with the religious speculations and ambiguities of this world. You must rid yourself of the secular man-centered philosophy. You must abandon the thinking of the evil world's system because it's pulling you down. That's what this whole culture is about brainwashing you to believe in a man-centered system which says that you can do whatever you want, however you want, because you yourself are God. You can't handle that. You can't operate like that and prepare to have victory. You must be wearing the belt of truth, and it must be sturdy. It must be strong. It must be ready. It was the great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge in the 19th century who said, quote, all loose thinking in the Christian life that is not tied down and girded up with truth is like going into battle with a belt made of spiderwebs. The belt, he writes, gives way as soon as the battle starts. Close quote. You, you can't have some type of spiderweb belt. You need a belt that's made of substance, a belt that's made of truth. And the only mindset that will serve as an effective belt and will lead us to victory is truth, specifically God's truth, as it is recorded for us here in Scripture. To prepare for battle, we must saturate our minds with the Word of God. We must soak in the robust revelation of biblical theology. We must stand firm in the power of His might. So please keep in mind that this is just the first piece of armor. For there are five other pieces of armor and also a secret weapon in the form of prayer that are used in this passage by which the believer can defend the onslaught and the attack of the spiritual forces of evil. I hope that you'll come back and hear about each and every piece of armor. But what I'd like to do for the remainder of our time today is simply apply this by looking at the attacks of Satan throughout history. Let's take a survey, if we can, 
throughout history and see how it is that Satan has attacked this very truth that you've been commanded by God to gird up around your waist. And here are just 10 ways, five from the Old Testament and five from the New, that are pretty significant. Number one, Satan said, you will not surely die. His first attack, obviously, was in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, the fall. God had given very clear commands to Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet Satan comes along as the serpent in Genesis 3 verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Well, that was the first lie that Satan ever told. Satan wants people to think that sin has no consequences. You will not surely die. For you can eat of this fruit, and then your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. You will be able to determine what is good and what is evil. It's a lie from Satan himself tackling the truth of God's word. We know that the New Testament tells us that the wages of our sin is death. You cannot live in this world and have your sin without facing death. Satan is a liar, and so are those who follow him. They are called by Jesus, uh, those who follow their father, the devil, who is a liar. Number two, every son you shall cast into the Nile. Another attack of Satan against truth was his attempt to kill Moses. We looked at this text just last week, Exodus chapter 1, verse 22 Pharaoh had heard rumblings about a possible deliverer because of the prophecy that was given in Genesis chapter 15 of one who would set his people free after the fourth generation. And they knew this was about the time Moses was there. And so in Exodus 1.22, then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born into the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so we understand this was Satan, Satan's effort to thwart God's plan of deliverance. Satan is a murderer. He comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But he will not thwart the plan of God. For what God has said will come true, for his word is infallible. And because of the word of his power, that did not happen. Moses was spared by divine providence and did become that deliverer so we could continue the theme of redemption throughout the Old Testament. And then we get to Numbers chapter 14, verse 2, number 3 in your outline. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. These are all, again, lies from Satan causing people not to think clearly. And here we have the Israelites there in the desert, and they're getting a little bit closer to the promised land. And so they send in 12 spies into the promised land, and 10 of them come back and say, there's no way we can take the promised land. Man, there, there's giants there. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. They'll kill us. And they began to sow discouragement and despair in the Israelites in the desert. And this is when they said in chapter 14, verse 2, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. In other words, they're believing the lie of Satan, that there's no way they would be able to enter into the promised land. They would have rather died in bondage back in Egypt or died in desperation out in the desert. Well, thank God that he rose raised up Caleb and Joshua, who did enter into the promised land by the power that God provided to complete that conquest and to fully move in. But then after they were in the land of Canaan, 
every man did what was right in his own eyes. Your next blank there is the theme of the book of Judges, that basically they were without a king, so every person thought that they could be king in their own way and in their own right. And so we see God have to raise up a cycle of, of deliverers, even in the book of Judges, to deliver them from themselves, their, their own son, and also others that were attacking them since they didn't fully complete the conquest. But the idea is that's just a lie again from Satan, that everybody can do what's right in your own eyes. The Israelites thought that since they didn't have a king in Israel, and they should have seen God as their ultimate king, that they could do what they wanted for themselves. The last Old Testament example of Satan's attack that I want to give to you this morning, number five, they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern. We understand then that after the Israelites finally did get a king in Saul, which they regretted, and then later a good king in David, who was not perfect, but a man after God's own heart, passed the kingdom on to Solomon, who started strong and had a little weak finish, and then the kingdom got split, and then you have all kind of issues going on, and Israel again wonders from their God, and so Jeremiah the prophet was one of many in a long line of men who called Israel to repent and to trust in God and to walk in his truth and in his statutes. And so what did they do to him? Did they say, thank you, Jeremiah, for your faithfulness to teach us about repentance? No, Jeremiah 38, 6. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes, and there was no water in the cistern but only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. And my friends, that's what will happen to us if we tell God's truth in the world of lies. Rarely will this culture ever thank you for standing up for the word of God. Instead, they will mock you, they will persecute you, and they will try to get rid of you. But Jeremiah didn't care. He was going to be faithful to his God, even through his tears and his plea for repentance. He also prophesied that they would be taken into exile, which is exactly what happened Israel goes into exile to the Babylonians for 70 years and then returns in Israelite history, continues all the way through the end of the book of Malachi. And then we enter into the New Testament where the Lord Jesus did come. Satan was not able to thwart his death either. If you remember, he escaped down into Egypt as an infant and then came back, lived a perfect life, died a criminal's death, was raised from the dead, sits at the right hand of the Father, and his work continues through the Acts of the Apostles. And now we see more attacks from Satan in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, we could say this, the, the attack from Satan was, unless you were circumcised, you cannot be saved. At the Jerusalem Council, due to the fact that the gospel had now spread beyond Jewish boundaries of Jerusalem into Samaria, which were made up of half-breeds, and also to Caesarea, which were made up of Gentiles. Now, there is some discussion whether or not these Gentiles, as the gospel is spreading, can actually be saved without keeping the Mosaic Covenant. And so they gathered together at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they are now listening to the voice of Satan to distract from the purity of the gospel and adding mosaic ramifications of circumcision as a requirement for salvation. Well, that's a lie from the pit of hell. And so we see Satan's attack even there. Number seven, there is no resurrection from the dead. 
Well, if he couldn't get them with circumcision, he begins to enter into the Corinthian church. And while it struggled with its own morality, it also struggled with good theology, particularly the theology of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which Paul devotes an entire chapter to prove the resurrection of Jesus also equals the resurrection of every believer in him. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Again, another lie from Satan against the truth of God. And Paul refuted that by saying, just as Christ was raised from the dead, you too shall be raised from the dead. He fights that lie as he ends 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And so we can know for every lie of Satan, whether it be circumcision or a lack of personal resurrection, it's a lie that is defeated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet the attack continues in Galatians number eight. I am astonished that you are turning to a different gospel. There again in Galatians, they were being distracted by the Judaizers who were infiltrating the church with false doctrine that you must obey certain parts of the Mosaic covenant, circumcision and dietary restrictions in order to earn salvation. And yet Paul writes to the church there in Galatians 1.6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want you to distort the gospel of Christ. Again, it's the lies from Satan against the truth, trying to unarmor the believer with the truth that he knows. The ninth attack that I want to bring to your attention is this. Certain persons have wandered away into vain discussion. First Timothy, a book about challenging pastors to preach the truth and not to give in to false teaching highlights how certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions so in other words these false teachers are saying things boldly but they don't even know what they're talking about because they're not tied down to the truth the last attack is the, that I want to give to you this morning is the attack of the church of Pergamum, one of the seven churches of Revelation. You could make an edit in your notes there. It should be Revelation 2.13. Your notes, I think, might say 3.13. It should be two, chapter 2, verse 13. One of the seven churches where Jesus says to them through the pen of the apostle John, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And here's what he says. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat the food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So even in one of the last seven standing churches we see of the New Testament, we have immorality that has infiltrated the church, idolatry which has infiltrated the church, the teachings of Balaam that have infiltrated the church that must be cast out. Again, these are attacks of Satan throughout biblical 
history. He did not stop at the close of the canon in 95 AD, for he continued throughout church history. In fact, let me just point out to you, if I can, three significant attacks of Satan on the church throughout church history. The first would be Arianism, which is the lie that Jesus is not of the same essence as God. In about the 3rd and 4th century, we understand that Arianism is a non-Trinitarian belief that asserts that Jesus Christ is a Son of God, created by God the Father, distinct from the Father, and therefore subordinate to the Father, but it denies that Jesus is God the Son. Arian and his teachings were first attributed uh, to, obviously, Arius, who was a leader of the Church of Alexandria in Egypt, and these teachings opposed mainstream doctrine of the Christian church from the early days until now. They attacked the nature of Christ. And the Arian concept of Christ is that the Son of God did not always exist, but he was created by God the Father. Well, my friends, that just simply is not true. And by the grace of God, true believers put down the damning doctrine and heresy of Arianism by using the gospel and the word of God. For it's Christ himself in John 10, 30, who said, I and the Father are one. There is no separation in the Godhead. We serve a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They were neither created nor came to be, but God, very God, from eternity past into eternity future. We read in Colossians 2, 9, Paul says, for in him, referring to Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man. A second attack that Satan brought in church history would be the attack of legalism, which is the lie that salvation is built on works, not on grace. About a thousand years later, after Arianism comes the the damning doctrine of legalism held up by the Roman Catholic Church, which taught that if you obey the seven sacraments of the church, that you might spend a little less time in purgatory. They don't believe in a grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that accomplishes salvation. Rather, they believe in the sacraments infusing a grace that would somehow help you get a little closer to God. They believed that you merited salvation through the works of the church. Yet we understand that legalism was shot down by the reformers, starting with Martin Luther and working through Calvin and Zwingli and so forth, by standing again on the word of God. It was Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 in this very epistle that says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. A third attack in church history, and one that's going on today, I believe, is the attack of annihilationism, which is the lie that hell is neither real nor hot. And I say in its attack because it's a little bit more subtle than universalism, but it's the first step there. And it's the idea that God does not punish unrepentant sinners in hell forever. And yet Isaiah 66 verse 24 says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. 
Jesus spoke of hell 11 times in the New Testament. One of the most clear descriptions is in Matthew 13, 40 through 42. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so I believe that this subtle heresy of annihilationism is trying to deny that hell exists. And if hell doesn't exist, then maybe God doesn't really deal seriously with sin. And maybe we are, in fact, all going to heaven. It's a lie from Satan throughout church history. And this leads us up to our third heading. It would be wise of us to study a little bit as we have the, the, the attacks of Satan throughout biblical history, the attacks of Satan throughout church history. But let me just bring up a few more things that are still raging today in the fight that you and I have in hand-to-hand combat. And we won't have time to look at each one of these in detail, but let me just say it like this. There's 10 things that I want to bring up to you. The first reference given in your notes is the attack of Satan. The second reference given in your notes is how you fight back the attack of Satan using the word of God. And so this would be an incredible Bible study for you as a family to work through as a devotion or in your small group as you talk about what the attacks of Satan are and how you can combat those attacks with the belt of truth. And we understand here, number one, or A in your outline, Satan attacks believers through doctrinal confusion. In the world that we live in today, the evangelical church is confused. When you have a mainline evangelical church, such as the United Methodists, who meet for a week to discuss whether or not homosexuality is a sin or not, then we understand that the church today is very confused. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it talks about how the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. And yet we're also encouraged with how to respond to that <clears throat> in verse 6, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. In other words, we can be good servants of Christ and clarify doctrinal confusion by simply taking the Bible and reading it literally and then applying it even in today's cultural morality. The second way Satan still attacks today would be he attacks believers by causing divisions. Even within the church, there's all kind of foolish controversies Titus talks about that are worthless, that are useless. We need to be rather, Ephesians 4.3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. A third way that Satan attacks believers today is through doubting your salvation. Every believer at some point has gone through a period of doubting your salvation. Some believers, for some reason, go through a lifetime of significant doubts against their own salvation. Well, my friends, this is a work of the devil. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, is talking about how Satan is an accuser of the brethren. And part of the idea there is that Satan continues to accuse you of your sin, making you think you're not good enough because of your past failures. But we understand that if you repent through a broken heart and that you're covered by the blood of Christ and that you believe in him and in his propitiatory sacrifice for your sin, you don't have to doubt anymore. That's why the epistle of 1 John is written, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know 
that you have eternal life. Eternal life is not about what you do or how you fell. Eternal life is about what Christ has done and how he wins. And this is a constant attack in the church today. D, in your outline, Satan attacks believers by making life difficult. We complain and we think that we're having a tough time. And sometimes we really are going through a, a, a somewhat of a, of a real trial. Jesus said that this would happen. John 16, 33, he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have trials. But then he says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. We're told by James, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So yes, this world is difficult, and it could pull us down. But when we put on the belt of truth, we are able to stand. E, Satan attacks believers through death by martyrdom. We read about it in the Bible in Hebrews 11. You need to know that in this current day that we live, there are Christians every day defeated and killed by ISIS and by other false systems of belief around our world. But we also can be encouraged that on this day that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So praise the Lord that we have an answer to the fights and the onslaughts of Satan. We have eternal life. Paul says is to live as Christ and to die as gain, that we have nothing to fear. F, Satan attacks believers by tempting them to be self-dependent. Well, that certainly describes Santa Carita. We can do it on our own. We can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. If you just get a good education and you work hard at work, you can make it on your own. You don't need the gospel. You don't need Christ. That's the culture that we're living in. And yet, we understand in the first Chronicles passage listed there that David got a little bit too proud about his accomplishments and the accomplishments of his army. So he wanted to run a census to count how many warriors he had as a prideful and a sinful motive. And yet we're reminded in the New Testament, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that remains in me and I in him shall bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. And one of the biggest attacks in our world is that you can do whatever you want. Well, you can't do anything without Christ. And the idea is that we cannot be self-dependent on our own works and our own effort, but we must be completely dependent upon Christ. Another way Satan attacks today is Satan attacks believers by drowning them in the busyness of life. I'm so busy, I'm not going to be able to make it to church today. We've got soccer and baseball and swimming, and we've got vacations and travel, or we just need to stay home and take a break, have a family day today because I've worked so hard this week. And while from time to time all of those may be appropriate in the world that you live in, I certainly don't have a problem with any of those things on occasion. But the idea is in the culture that we live in, it is dominating our society. Solomon says it's all vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, except the end of Ecclesiastes. Here's the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Another way Satan attacks is that he attacks believers by enticing them to live duplicitous lives. Second Kings talks about the greed of Gehazi, who while Naaman was, uh, after he was healed by Elisha, uh, didn't want to 
Elisha didn't want to receive payment. Later, Gehazi goes out, receives the payment from Naaman, comes back into Elisha acting like he had done no wrong, and then he is struck with leprosy. He was a hypocrite. That's what's going on in our world today. So many people who would claim Christ, people in high places and positions in our country would claim Christianity, but it's only a cultural claim, for they don't even understand the exclusivity of the cross of Jesus Christ. They're living a duplicitous life. And yet we understand there was one by the name of Nathaniel who Jesus said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. We can live a life of wholeness and integrity in the person of Jesus Christ. I, Satan attacks believers by downplaying their sin. This started off in the garden. It continues throughout history. Certainly in that 1 Samuel 15 passage, you remember how Saul said that he had obeyed the word of the Lord, where Samuel confronted him and said, you have not obeyed the word of the Lord. You were supposed to kill all the Amalekites, and you've allowed many of their sheep and cattle to live, and their king Agag. So Samuel had to finish the deal. And the idea is that, that we downplay our sin, thinking that somehow we've obeyed, we rationalize. And yet David gave a little better example after he sinned by saying in Psalm 51, 4, against you and you only have I sinned. We need to have a heart of true confession as believers to own our sin and to confess it before the Lord and before others. Otherwise, you are not putting on the belt of truth. J, Satan attacks believers by distracting them with the pleasures of this world. We read about the fair-weathered disciple, Demas, who in love with this present world deserted Paul and went on in a different direction. And that's why we're told in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. These are ways that Satan attacks believers even today. And so as we head out of here in just a few moments, let me give you these take-home practical questions to you. Number one, are you wearing the belt of truth today? Are you wearing the belt of truth today? You understand that if you're not saved, you don't have on the belt of truth. You must first repent of your sin and of your own ideology of making it to heaven by being a good person. You must first acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of grace, and you can repent and believe in the risen Savior who will forgive you of your sins, who will gird up your loins with the truth and place his armor on you. Are you wearing the belt of truth today? Number two, what have you learned from the attacks of Satan through history? I've given you much to think about, both biblical and church history. What can we learn from each and every one of these attacks so that we could be ready on this day? Satan may be busy, but he's not that smart. He continues in the same effort, in the same way, throughout all of history, and you know his tactics. You can defeat him by putting on the armor of God. Lastly, how are you fighting the battle today with the truth of God's word. We'll talk more about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, but it's also encapsulated in the objective truth that I believe the belt reflects as we've studied today. It starts off the battle by girding up your loins with the belt of truth. Let's pray together. 
God, we bow before you this morning, and we're thankful for such clear teaching throughout the Bible. Lord, the idea of the examples from the Apostle Paul and the examples throughout biblical history, the clear teaching of your word, God, that just allows us to see what the belt of truth is and how to gird up our loins to prepare our minds for action. And so I pray, God, that you would allow us just to be washed by the water of your word today and that we would be determined as we leave that we want to do a better job understanding how to gird up our loins with truth, how to fasten on this belt to protect us, to hold things together, to be prepared for action, to run, and to, and to, and to be uh, able to just be poised for that potential onslaught from the enemy. God, I pray today if there be one here who doesn't have on the belt of truth, that on this day you would open up their heart to the gospel of grace, that you would save them by resurrection power of the Lord Jesus and that you would place on them the belt of truth. God, I pray for every believer here today that you would teach us how to put this armor on, how to, how to be strong in a continuing way, but how this armor has been put on in the past with ongoing results because you've enabled us to fight this kind of battle, to fight this kind of, of fight because the war has already been won. So we praise you for being our commander and our chief. We praise you that we have no fear in Christ. We praise you that we can walk out of here victorious. And yet, at the same time, we must be ready for hand-to-hand combat. God, give us your strength today as we walk out of here in the power of your might. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.